The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 51, followed by the New Testament reading, Matthew 5. Isaiah 51. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be fulfilled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, and for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning. It's good to be back with you again. You can see my title uh, on the screen. Um, and I think I'll admit that it might be debatable to describe Australia as post-Christian. Uh, we are somewhere maybe between Christian and post-Christian, but something has happened in the last 10 to 15 years in Aussie culture. Those of you who have been sort of tracking it, I think will agree that there's been a kind of pivot against the goodness of the Christian faith. Uh, I, I was involved in uh, 2008 in a debate uh, where the motion under debate was we'd be better off without religion. And there were 2,000 people in attendance over at uh, Angel Place up the road. 
It was broadcast on the ABC and supported by the Sydney Morning Herald and the St. James Ethics Institute. Christianity was the main religion under discussion. It's the sort of safe one to criticise. And there were three people debating for the motion that we'd be better off without all this mumbo-jumbo, and three people arguing against the motion, saying we wouldn't be better off without Christianity. And I'm sad to report that we spectacularly lost the debate. Both the entrance poll uh, and the exit poll. So they uh, polled everyone as they came into the auditorium before they heard the awesome arguments, and then polled afterwards, uh, but we lost both. It was just overwhelmingly clear that this particular group of 2,000 Sydney Morning Herald readers and ABC listeners thought that we would be better off without uh, the Christian faith in this world. And, and I think this was the night that I came away thinking that our culture has pivoted. It was pretty common to hear Australians say, one of the problems with Christianity is it's too goody-two-shoes, holier-than-thou, too moral for me. And now it's um, equally common, if not more common amongst uh, some sets anyway, to say that, no, no, the problem with Christianity is that it's immoral, it's pernicious, hateful, bigoted, and the violent history of Christianity, not to mention bad behavior in recent times, proves it. Uh, this chimes with an Ipsos poll conducted uh, in 2017, uh, just uh, in the middle of the year, where they surveyed people from 20 countries, asking them whether they agreed that religion does more harm in the world than good. And it was really interesting because Australia had the second worst view of religion in the world, equal second. 63% of Australians reckon religion does more harm in the world than good. Uh, only uh, people from Belgium had a lower view. I don't know, I have yet to meet someone who can explain why the Belgians uh, have such a low view of, uh, of religion. But 63%, 6 in 10 Aussies reckon that uh, Christianity, included amongst uh, religions, has done more harm than good. Now, there are things we can say to the charge that Christianity is harmful to the world. There are intellectual things that one can say. And I was involved, uh, some of you will know, uh, in a documentary that aired on the ABC in 2018, and our title was For the Love of God. The subtitle gave it away, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And we try and deal with the intellectual complaint in a fair, honest conceding way. Join us as we travel the globe and back through history to uncover the truth. The church is better and worse than you ever imagined. So after three years of research and production and filming and airing, I'm pretty confident there are, there are some intellectual things we can say in reply to the complaint that Christianity overall harms. However, I am equally convinced there is only one really convincing reply. And it's the one Jesus gave in our reading from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have it open in front of you, it's just that last paragraph from 
what are the opening paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount. Just that one that begins, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Just stand back from a second. Jesus believed that the good deeds of his disciples would shine throughout the world and convince people to glorify God. I'm not making that up, am I? That's what he said. That's what he said. Now, uh, this notion of an international light has a huge backstory in Judaism and in particular in the Old Testament, which is why I asked for one of those readings from the Old Testament, Isaiah, to be read. But um, several times in Isaiah, we get this idea of a light that goes to the whole world. So in Isaiah 49.6, we read, I will also make you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah 51, we read, Listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light for the nations. So here is this international light. Um, and, and it is simultaneously salvation and the instruction and justice of God. That's what the light is. And many Jews in Jesus' day were waiting for the great light to the nations to appear. And so Jesus gets up in the Sermon on the Mount with this huge backstory and expectation of light and says to his disciples on a hill in Galilee, you lot are that light of the world through your good deeds. And in context, that can only mean the deeds he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. All that stuff about being meek, merciful, peacemaking, turning the other cheek, loving enemies, and so on. And the result, Jesus says, is that people will glorify God. That's a biblical euphemism for people joining in the worship of God. They'll look at your good deeds and glorify God. We might say, be converted. But either way, his point is, he really believed Christians would shine to the world through their deeds and convince people to worship the true God. Now, uh, this is of course true of individuals. Individual Christians can powerfully influence others. In fact, the Apostle uh, Peter, who was there when the Sermon on the Mount was first preached, so he's a good interpreter, uh, years later wrote to Christians in what we call Turkey, about 25 years after the Sermon on the Mount, clearly recalling those words I just read out. And he says to Christians, live such good lives among the pagans that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. The language connection with that paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is, is clear. But then in the very next page of 1 Peter, 
he gives a specific individual example of good deeds able to change the life of those who aren't Christians. Now, I'm going to read it. It's a bit of a controversial text, so you'll just forgive me. It's part of the Scripture, so we're not into the picking and choosing line of biblical interpretation here. But he's talking to Christian wives who have non-Christian husbands. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the Word, so they're non-Christians, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, we could have a long discussion about the awkward topic of wifely submission, and I would in that talk make the case linguistically and biblically that uh, submission simply means respect. But I'd ask you to try not to be distracted by that and stand back and look at the text and see the Apostle Peter teaching that it's possible for behavior to convince non-Christians to believe. And he, and he so underlines it that he says without words, which in the Greek is even stronger, it's the, uh, uh, he says anulogu, which means without a word, without a single word. So he's really underlining it. Now, someone is telling the word to the husbands, clearly, because that's what's wrong with the husbands in the first place. They don't believe the word. So someone's telling them the word. But, his, but his point, Peter's point is, even without being the one to say a word, the life of the Christian wife can draw the husband to believe. And my point is, it's clear in Scripture that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount can be true of individuals. And there's a beautiful illustration of this given by Tim Winton. Not sure if you know Tim Winton. If you don't, shame on you. Uh, one of the most successful novelists of the last 20 or 30 years in this country. Um, Cloud Street was his gorgeous, gorgeous uh, novel. What's another one? Uh, Breath, Dirt Music. Um, and, he, and he drops hints of God in his novels. He's really hard to work out. He's got a super subtle. And he was interviewed on Andrew Denton's um, show on ABC, where, they, where he does those really in-depth interviews. Gorgeous uh, show. And Andrew Denton, um, if, if you know, uh, is, is not like famous for heaping love on Christianity. And, and, and yet, so he, here he has Tim Winton in the hot seat, and he decides to ask Winton about his Christian faith, which seems to pop up in all his novels. And Winton told just the most gorgeous story of how when he was young, when he was a boy, his dad, who was a policeman, was um, knocked off his motorcycle by a drunk driver and left um, basically disabled. And um, the family was poor, they couldn't do much with it, and it was in the 1960s, and he, um, he, he said his, his dad would just lie either on the couch or sometimes we could get him to the bed, but it was really hard to wash him, he was a big man, and the family was really distraught. But some local heard about it and knocked on the door one day and said, G'day, I'm Len Thomas. And he was apparently this big, beefy giant of a man. And oh, I'd like to uh, help if I can. And Tim Winton said that from that day on, 
he would come every day and pick up Mr. Winton from the bed, take him to the bath where the wife could wash him, dry him, reclothe him, and this, then Thomas would pick him back up, take him back to bed every day. And Tim said as a boy he watched this daily occurrence, which he described as a strangely sacrificial act. And I think Tim Winton could see that Denton was, you know, awkward about the whole Christian thing. And, and Winton said, Tim Winton said, regardless of what you think of theology, when you see a strangely sacrificial act like that, it brings Christianity into your home, and you can't deny it. Now, Winton's whole family embraced the Christian faith. He's super subtle about it in his novels, but his brother's a chaplain now, full-time chaplain in the West Australia. My point is, one life, one Christian life lived looking like the gospel of sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice can change lives. That said, I don't think that's Jesus' emphasis in this particular passage. As true as it is from other parts of Scripture that an individual Christian life can have a powerful effect, Jesus' emphasis is on Christian community, not on Christian individuals. And there's a kind of subtle um, way that that's clear and it's only subtle because of the English language, which doesn't distinguish between a singular you and a plural you, right? We read, you are the light of the world, and we, in our individualistic, psychologizing culture, think, Jesus is talking about me. I'm a little light of the world, and I go out and I be my little light, right? But actually, it's plural in the original language. And I know this is sort of gross and uncouth, but he said, use are the light, singular. Isn't that interesting? Use, plural, are the light, singular. The emphasis, the accent falls on the Christian community as a community. And they're all plurals through here. Use are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. And then down to verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine. It's the light of yous shine before others that they may see the good deeds of yous and glorify the father of yous in heaven. Or if you prefer that sort of southern US, uh, y'all, right? You like that? Y'all. Y'all are the light of the world. And someone recently told me in um, Texas the other day that now, because of the degrading tendency in the English language, y'all can mean singular. Fair income. And so now, it's very common to hear Texans say, all y'all. All y'all come? Because y'all can just mean Professor Bell. All right. Here's, here's the point I want to draw out. And, and in a way, it's not subtle. It's, it, it's, it's potent. It feels potent to me. Yes, an individual Christian can have an impact. But, you know, there are lots of individual lovely gorgeous, sacrificial people out there, but when an entire community is activated by sacrificial love, that is highly suspicious, that is conspicuous, that stands out and is hard to explain. An entire community animated by grace points to the grace of God. 
The ideal is that when an entire community, made up of very ordinary people individually, is captivated by grace, the sum of the parts adds up to a much greater whole. This was certainly true of the first Christians. I don't mean to turn this into a, an ancient history lesson, which not, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's certainly true in the first three or four centuries the Christian community lit up the Roman world. So far as we can tell, they were the first to establish an international aid project where the Apostle Paul in the 40s and 50s gathered masses of money to bring to the famine-ravaged people of Judea. We know that by the 200s, the Church of Rome, which was still itself being persecuted, was feeding 1,500 people a day on its food roster. We know that Christians in North Africa, the tip of North Africa in Hippo, where St. Augustine was, uh, was freeing slaves as early as the 5th century. It was a church project to go and free slaves from the local um, ports where slave traders would come, uh, feed them, clothe them, give them money and secret them on their way. We know that Christians were the first to offer free burials, something we now take for granted. I mean... Anyone, no matter how poor in Australia, will get a free burial. But the Christians invented it because it was such a, uh, such a fear in antiquity that you would die and not have a proper burial because you'd just be taken out to the rubbish dump. And Christians solved this problem by having these catacombs, super cheap caves underneath the streets of Rome. And some of you have been to visit the catacombs. This is just the catacombs of Priscilla where over 100,000, I think it's 150,000 people were buried. The first recorded public hospital was established in the 4th century by the wealthiest woman of Rome, uh, Fabiola, who became a Christian quite late in life, read the Gospels and thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> I love the world. <laughs> and she established a hospital, which was well known in the um, armies of Rome, hospital, travelling hospitals, but that wasn't available to the public. Fabiola took the idea and made it available to the public. By the next century, there are public hospitals all over uh, the Mediterranean. By three or four centuries later, all over Europe. And now we take it for granted and we owe it to Fabiola. Uh, Christians were so active in this communities of grace, in this Sermon on the Mount life that shines, that the emperor of the time, in the middle of the fourth century, Emperor Julian, panicked that Christians were taking over the world. And we have a whole bunch of his letters, which make hilarious bedtime reading, uh, about the Christians. The emperor of the world saying, those rotten Christians are caring for everyone, and they're going to take over the world by the stealth of their good deeds. And in one of the letters, he says this. This is to one of the, uh, to, to one of the pagan officials. Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers and their care for the graves of the dead, that have done most to increase this atheism. He calls Christianity atheism because Christians deny all the Greek and Roman gods. But you can see he's specifically referring to their food programs, benevolence to strangers, and their um, free burials. It is disgraceful that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teresa Morgan, one of the leading classicists 
in the world today from Oxford University, was asked in an interview, what would you say is the single greatest contribution of Christianity to the ancient world? This is what she said. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just. And because of that, Christians are called always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world where the gods may be just but may not, where the gods may love human beings but may not, where being merciful you know, might be the right thing on a certain day but might not, where loving your neighbour you know, might serve you but might not. It's a Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good for everybody and they are always good. I think that was transformational for the Roman world and then for the Christian world and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. Unless that seemed like only ancient history, uh, for my podcast, I interviewed Andrew Lee recently. Uh, he is the Shadow Minister for Charities, Labour Federal MP, and an open atheist. He did his PhD at Harvard in social capital, what builds social capital in, a, in society, then brought that research and applied it to Australia. And he is adamant, though an atheist, that the backbone of social capital in Australia is the church. <laughs> well worth listening to the interview itself, but listen to what he writes. Among churchgoers, those who attended a religious service in the previous month, 25%, so a quarter, also participated in a community service or civic association over the same period. That means a non-church civic association, voluntary activity. By contrast, among non-churchgoers, just 12% participated in a community or civic association. He will say the, the church effect is a doubler of community involvement. Regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Now, I'm almost embarrassed to read that out, but if you listen to the pod, he, he's just, he's adamant about it. The data is in. Christians might not be much individually. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But something happens when they gather around the crucified Saviour. Strangely sacrificial acts become the community ethos. Even if I'm an arrogant jerk, when I'm swept up in a community animated by the grace of God, something happens. And for another episode, I know this sounds like an ad for my pod, but in another episode, I interviewed this woman, Sarah Irving Stonebracker. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. She, she's a really interesting young woman. Uh, she was one of the, the top stu HSC students in the state. You know, when the HSC results come out, ABC News always does a little thing, or here are the top five students. She was one of those super nerds. And she got a scholarship to Cambridge University, which she accepted. She got a full scholarship to do a PhD at Cambridge University, which she accepted. Her topic, the origins of science in the modern world. 
She was a proud atheist, raised in a family of atheists. And she thought such a PhD would just fit with her paradigm. And when you hear it in her own words, it's really interesting. She said, but having to read the actual primary documents of the first modern scientists, Newton and Boyle and Galileo and so on, it really uh, freaked me out, she says, that they always talked about God. They would move from the most highfalutin mathematical equations to then give praise to the God whose rationality is built into matter. And it messed with her head. And she began to think, maybe Christians aren't as dumb as I've grown up thinking they are. And so she just, for a moment, opened herself to the thought. She then got a job at Oxford University uh, teaching modern history. And while she was there, one of the great atheist professors of philosophy in the world from Princeton University was giving a series of public lectures in Oxford. And she went along convinced this would bolster her atheism, you know, sort of protect her from any encroaching religiosity, she went. And the way she describes it is, by the end of the, I think it was three or maybe four lectures, she was convinced atheism cannot be true. Her entire life, an atheist, listening to this high-level atheist made her think, oh my goodness, it's shallow. She found herself in the Bodleian one day, the library at Oxford, where she'd always sat and never noticed a great big wall of books beside her, which were old 17th, 18th century sermons. She took a volume off and started to read it. And this girl, who hadn't been to church, <laughs> who raised you know, atheists, just would, in the midst of all her study and her work at Oxford, just read sermons, 200, 300-year-old sermons, volumes of them. And, and she said by the end of Oxford, she was convinced atheism can't be true. She was convinced Christianity isn't as dumb as she always thought. But she had never encountered Christianity, real Christianity. How did that happen? She got a job at Florida State University teaching history. And when she was there someone invited her to church one day. Just a typical churchy said, oh, uh, my church is um, down the road, why don't you come one day? Uh, she went. She pretty soon found that in this church anyway, they were serving the homeless. It was a city church. They were serving the homeless. They had food programs, uh, big volunteering ministries to the city. And even though she didn't believe, she was swept up in this community of grace. And as she describes it, she suddenly saw the grace that all those 17th century sermons had talked about. She saw it and believed it. And, and if you listen to her, she is actually a full-on Christian now. I mean, she's one of those... I'm a sinner, the world's under judgment, Jesus died on the cross and rose again so we could be free kind of Christians. But she would say it was actually seeing it, not just thinking about it, that drew her into the wonder of God's grace. And I, I know this is all sort of a bit long-winded and so on, but my point is, that's what Jesus said would happen. 
That's what Jesus said would happen. Yous are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that people may see your good deeds. Mercy, meekness, peacemaking, willingness to suffer rather than harm, love, grace. So that people might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May that be true of this congregation, of this whole church, of this diocese. So that many people like Sarah might come to see and believe the good news. Lord, we pray that in your mercy, you would speak to us wherever we find ourselves in this journey of faith or doubt even, that you would enable us to trust in Christ's sacrifice and grace and then live it, that despite our foibles and failings as individuals, that by the power of your Spirit, this community would be a community that shines and brings many to glorify you, our God and Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.